Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that impacts your agency and organization. Today, we'll have Robert Graham from Erata Security. Good day, Robert. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for joining our podcast today. I think we have a very good conversation lined up around certifying software. Yeah. Robert, you, you've been in the news uh, late, I should say, um, very controversial to a certain extent uh, regarding the issue around Underwriters Lab. Robert, you've been quoted in articles stating that there's so much software that it's impossible to certify every little component. You also indicated that it's like trying to certify an aircraft by only looking at the outside shell of the boat. Question I have for you is what do you think is a realistic approach to certifying software? Uh, the realistic approach is to certify the basics. Um, instead of trying to do everything, trying to certify that the software is secure, try to certify that the software is not insecure. For example, certify that the software contains no hard-coded passwords. Certify that the software does not use uh, well-known uh, insecure functions like stir-copy and sprintf. Certify that if you just run a, a quick tool to quickly throw random packets at a device, it won't crash. Certify that... Um, the software, when it transmits across the network, that nothing is transmitted across. In clear text, that everything is encrypted. So that's not certifying that it does everything correctly and that it can't be hacked. Instead, it's certifying that these common problems have been solved by the software manufacturer. Another thing that would be, would be useful as part of certification is just for a manufacturer to list every software component that's in the system. Um, this is a problem that's been historic with software that for example, there's a uh, open SSL bug and software doesn't get fixed because no one knows that this this particular product has open SSL in it. Um, mature companies do this anyway. It'd be a useful thing to, to certify that all companies do it. So essentially, including a bill of material and just doing right. basic security hygiene, I would say. So when when an open SSL bug happens, the uh, customer looks at the documentation and says, "Hey." This product uses OpenSSL and that vulnerable version. I can now call my manufacturer who probably wasn't aware of the bug to begin with because tracking everything is impossible. But the customer calls up and says, hey, I, I have your product, and I noticed that you have an unpatched vulnerability here. Can you please patch it? Right. It's putting software labels on software, right, ingredients so we can understand what's in the software is very important. Right. Because you can't secure what you don't know about. Right. So that kind of leads me to the next point I wanted to talk about is the Underwriters Lab has a, a document series called UL2900 series, which right. basically provides an, an assessment, a security assessment for software. It talks about static analysis, dynamic analysis, fuzzing, as well as some other security analysis and testing activities. I personally, right. believe, I personally believe that automated software assurance tools are tremendously behind the power curve. So if the tools are mediocre, then how do we certify software? Well, if, if again, if they took the basic approach, having run these tools and having the software come up clean would help. But these tools, as you say, they're way behind the curve. They're nowhere near comprehensive. So we're never going to achieve comprehensiveness with these tools. But if we can just say, hey, this software passes 
uh, these minimal criteria. For example, static analysis tools look for stir copy. Stir copy is the well-known function in C that, that has led to a lot of buffer overflows and a lot of problems. If we could just certify software saying, hey, there's no stir copy in the software, that would make progress. But as you say, the, the idea is, is that we're going to use the software to comprehensively certify there's no flaws, and the software is nowhere close to that, you know, nowhere close to being able to do that. So even if you take the example you gave about buffer overflows and then just trying to work with some of the state-of-the-art tools, um, and when we start talking about false positives and false negatives, even these tools really don't do a good job at this particular weakness class. So how do you even get some ground truth as it relates to looking for just a one particular weakness class like buffer overflow or something related to memory? Well, that's why I said stir copy. It's really easy to say there's no stir copy in your program, that you use something else like stir copy S or stir L copy, which have balance checking on the, inside the function. It doesn't guarantee there's no buffer overflow, but it guarantees you're not using the old software it, it, that you've put thought into it, that you're using the new software that's less prone to failure. Um, the, the software does catch a lot of potential buffer overflows, but as you say, it's also got a lot of false positives. So when you run these tools on it, you're going to get a lot of false positives. So then what do you do? How do you certify something as passing the tool when there are false positives? And these false positives are often a, a human judgment. They're not really clearly an error or clearly not an error. Um, I, I, I run these tools on my own software, and it says that there's a potential buffer overflow here. And as a human judgment, I say, well, I could clean up the code a little bit to make it more obvious to the stack analyzer that there's no problem, but I know myself there's no problem. But then it's really hard for human to make those judgments. Robert, a couple of weeks ago, Jay Radcliffe found four vulnerabilities in Johnson & Johnson's insulin pump. And there have been other or similar cases of vulnerabilities associated with medical devices. We've all become vulnerable to poorly developed and poorly designed software. What's the best way to address this problem, specifically as it relates to medical devices? Well, the issue with medical devices is that it's not because they have complex software vulnerabilities, but because they have the basic ones. Um, a good example was the the St. Jude software issues, where um, it was a simple hard-coded password that was easily found on the device that allowed you to get into the device and then cause problems. Um, it was also an issue with unaccounted protocols with the over the wi wireless with the with the pacemaker. So the problem with medical devices that we have right now is not that they they are having complex problems like buffer overflows, but that they're still they're still dealing with the basic problems. And um, that's something that a little bit that people can look and point out would help, though I suspect that just security researchers constantly pointing these out is going to be much more effective than trying to establish a comprehensive UL program to certify them as safe. Do you think there has been uh, enough transparency as it relates to uh, Underwriters Lab for software security? Well, I don't have a copy of the 2900, uh, 2900 series documents because it costs money. Um, they we, we aren't discussing this in the public what those documents contain. We're just, just discussing around them according to the um, the summaries that they have on their website describing what the documents contain. So that's 
So the answer to your question is no. There's no. There's not enough transparency. So what do you think is the best way uh, for something? Um, this you know this process would probably affect um, pretty much everyone who either acquires software or develops software. Having said that, it really needs to be vetted. You probably need community input. What do you think is the best way to achieve that? Well, the, the basics, one of the basic concepts in cybersecurity is the Kirchhoff's principle, where things are to be, are supposed to be open. So back in the, the day when we created, when we created security, uh, I mean, encryption protocols, we did so leaving the entire algorithms and protocols open, even to our enemies, on the principle that it makes it easier for our friends to point out any flaws. The same thing applies everywhere, whether it's software source code or standards documents. If they're closed, it means you're hiding something, so some, some, something bad. If they're open and people can criticize them, it means you can, you can stand up to criticism. And any, any valid criticisms we come up with will therefore improve the process. Without having them open to the community, it's no, it's, the community has no choice but to say that the standard is bad and, and no one should follow it. Robert, I want to shift gears for a second and talk about software liability. Should right. suppliers be held accountable is the first question. Then I want to follow up and say, how does this impact the open source community where so many components and libraries are used in modern software? Right. So that is a problem. And, and your, your second question sort of answers the first, is that suppliers are going to be using open source as a, probably the majority of the software on what they supply. And... They, it's really hard for them to, to have software liability when you can't pass it down to the developers. And likewise, the amount of source that they need to include is so huge that they can't possibly write, write their own certifiable software stack. So what that means is, is that when you apply software liability, you're gonna, the only way to, um, for suppliers to deal with that is to simplify what they're providing. Which probably means no more computer control of pacemakers, no more computer controls of insulin pumps, uh, which means a poor outcome for the patient. So, you know, if you said software liability, then new advances stop appearing. Then there's no new advances in medical equipment or anything else that has software liability, which will leave us all worse off in the long run. Robert, before we end this podcast, I would like to get your top five bucket list items for improving software security. Well, as I mentioned, I really have this top one bucket list items, which is um, um, for looking at the medical devices and IoT. Um, the biggest problem out there is hard-coded passwords. That's what recently Brian Krebs had a massive terabit scale DDoS on his website. And that came from a DDoS from... Um, cameras out on the internet that had hard-coded passwords and he wrote that they tack a little worm that would go through from camera to camera and guess the common default passwords that are on these cameras and then take control of a lot of them tens of thousands of them so that if we could solve that bug um we would make a big progress in in cybersecurity. so instead of thinking about trying to comprehensively solve all bugs let's solve the worst bug then we could go down the list from there. Uh, the next most common problem in software in general is SQL injection. It happens on websites, but it happens in every little application that you have on devices. Um, solving that would make a big, a big leap forward. Um, 
And those are really the only two that I have. If we could solve those, we could then start hunting down lesser bugs. If we just solve the two biggest ones, then um, once we have the processes in place to solve those two bugs, we could then start extending the process. That's awesome, Robert. Hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about software security and software certification. Certainly, my pleasure. Thanks, Robert. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. I want to thank our guest today, Robert Grant. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives on FedScoot Radio with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.